And so I learned while researching this book that Jackie Kennedy was a far more transformative figure than her husband, John. John Kennedy failed to pass any legislation connected to his pet causes of civil rights and economic justice. Jackie Kennedy succeeded in getting half of America's infrastructure renamed after her husband. John Kennedy's philandering and dishonesty made him a poor role model for future Democratic presidents. Jackie Kennedy's dedication to high culture inspired all future Democratic first ladies to promote anodyne causes like physical fitness or universal health care. John Kennedy was the fourth U.S. president to be assassinated. Jackie Kennedy was the first widow of an assassinated president to have a public career after her husband's untimely death. Before you agree to co-author Jackie Kennedy, an American wife, do you have any questions, Ms. Mann? Hmm. It's an interesting theory, Dr. Nair, but I'm going to push back on it a little bit. I believe that both Kennedys were equally influential as style icons. Uh, for example, Jackie made a splash for wearing a hat while Jack made a splash for not wearing one. Wow, what a contradiction. And that's why you must collaborate with me, Ms. Mann. Based on your comments in DB Comedy's The Electables podcast, you seem well-versed in matters of both history and fashion. I am, of course, conversant with all of American history, but I'm a fashion illiterate. Yes, I've noticed. Uh, tell you what, Dr. Nair, I'll be your co-author if I get final say over what you wear on the book tour. Of course. Uh, can you do something about my hair as well? And when I look at some of my old jacket photos, I notice how pale and uneven my skin tone is. Can you recommend a foundation and perhaps a moisturizer? Hmm. You're determined to be my moonshot, aren't you? Ask not what Dr. Nair can do for you, but what you can do for Dr. Nair. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 35, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents the Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. Okay, let's formally introduce each other so we can actually talk about what we're here to talk about. Uh, how about, let's see, I'm going to go, Joe? Uh, yes, I am Patrick. And I am Paul. Uh, hello, I'm Sylvia. I am Sandy. I'm James. Hello, it's Chelsea. Americanists, as we approach today's episode, actually I want to start with something that struck me based on discussions we have had internally about Mr. John F. Kennedy. And since we talk a lot about generational differences and how we learn and understand history, it did strike me that 
Kennedy may be what may sort of be a marker because for a lot of us that have been around for a while, JFK at least has is sort of this mythical big deal. Probably because of how his presidency ended more than anything else, along with some of the things we discovered about his private life. Also, the cultural shift that happened. I love the fact that the day after John F. Kennedy's assassination was the day I Want to Hold Your Hand was released in the United States, which mm. is interesting to me. Yeah. But, but you and James are not of our generation, although you are of Patrick's generation. I don't know if y'all revered him or were taught to revere him or the myth of Camelot in the same way I think a lot of us were. First of all, I, I want to say I enjoy the dichotomy of the, that there's the Kennedy generation and then there's the Patrick generation. Um, <laughs> I'm just that important. I, well, there was a Patrick Kennedy somewhere in there because there has to be. Of course. Of course. There's probably like seven of them. Where um, Patrick's are everywhere in Irish families. Good Irish name. But I thought I thought that, that where that discussion kind of went was really interesting because in in the course of 20th century presidents, because he's like this celebrity president in an age when yes. celebrity can mean even more than it has in the past, when celebrity is really becoming a new phenomenon. Not that it didn't exist before, but it can it's permeating American society in different ways through the widespread adoption of television and of print media, um, especially of colored image print media, which I think is, is something that doesn't get talked about as a lot, but is is a thing. Like Look Magazine and Life Magazine and Time Magazine, all these magazines that people got with glossy, full-color yeah. photos on them. And, and a president with the awareness of knowing that that needs yes. to be manipulated, if not the skill to manipulate it himself. Right. So James and what I think is interesting is that I think from Kennedy onward, Kennedy is the model of what people expect a president to sound like, to act like, and to be like, even though I think Kennedy remains unique in how he did what he did, whether or not his actual policies were for good or for ill or something we'll dive into shortly, I'm sure. But I think to this day, I'm sure if you could clone JFK in a lab, right, and, you know, give him the same upbringing that JFK actually had and run him for president. He would win again. Competitive. Yes. He would win again. Because mm -hmm. he is what I think Americans are always looking for in a president. Somebody who is young, who is articulate, who, you know, is 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 smart and is self-confident um, and is attractive. Telegenic. Well, and it's, so, it's so interesting to me, James, that you say this because I was talking to someone and we were trying to make some plans and I'm like, oh, I can't do anything on Tuesday. I record this podcast about the American presidents. And they're like, okay, that's not weird. Um, <laughs> but she was like, so what's, what's the purpose? Do you all always like point back and try to figure out the current moment that we were in? Like, are you trying to figure out how JFK creates Donald Trump? And I was like, no, not really, but essentially JFK is the first celebrity president who's able to manipulate mass media. And in that sense is kind of this precursor to Donald Trump. Like leads the hair the way, too. like Donald, like JFK, I could see him hosting the celebrity apprentice and just being less mean. 
Uh, well, they have the same hairstyle, so it makes a certain um, That's a really interesting, and, and you know, in our in our word of counterfactuals, pre, you know, Kennedy Kennedy wins and and serves out his term, doesn't get assassinated, probably wins election in sixty re-election in sixty four. I kind of think his second term would have been a lot rougher politically than his first one was because he probably have lost Congress. But, right. You know, you know, he'd be stuck on that that two term limit. He gets out in. 69 and he's still in his late 40s what the heck does jfk do with the rest of his life um right so we we have some answers but they have nothing to do with diplomacy or policy post hollywood squares (laughs) Um, i could see him as an elder statesman um you know putting his celebrity to use for who whatever next democrat comes along clinton yeah possibly being a kingmaker I mean, there's so many of the, like Sandy just mentioned Clinton, there's so many Democrats who just also uh, mythologized Kennedy and looked up to him that wanted to be Kennedy. The I other mean, possibility is that he would have been campaigning or support or advising his brother as president. That's true. Yes. The yes. dynasty. Yes. And yes. again in 76. Yes. Yep. People yeah, did fantasize about a 24-year Kennedy dynasty. in the Like the, the, their mm. father particularly. Was that Joseph's uh, vision or did JFK want that too? The 1960s really do mark this moment, this, this new and fresh um, like moment of energy and and motion and progress and optimism. And JFK embodies that um, for an entire generation. And I, you know, that is a very cliche thing to say. And historians have gone back and forth over whether that's true or not. But I think the historians who bait whether that's true or not miss the point. It doesn't matter if it's true. That's how the public sees it and feels it. I think one of the things that makes it like all that stuff is true. And then, of course, there's the assassination. But there's there's the Shakespearean (laughs) element. The fact that Kennedy represented youth and optimism at a time that the country wanted youth and optimism. And then he's killed and then everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's almost like people feel like if Kennedy hadn't been killed, that it wouldn't have gone that way. And I don't think that's true at all. I, I think, think Kennedy so was already committed to the policies, namely Vietnam, yeah. that caused the social turmoil of the late 1960s. But it's like his death marks like the beginning of this period of insanity. The end of the innocence. Right. I don't even know if it's innocence, right? But this sense of higher purpose, both in our nation and to the world, and that that could be achieved. Hi, it's Tommy Spears, the Pete Davidson of DB Comedy. I'm young, and I show up less than half the time. And if I play my cards right, I could be Kim Kardashian's rebound. My whole life I've heard about what a great president JFK was, and how sad his death was. Baby boomers would tell me it was their 9-11, even though only two people died that day, which is a record low for Dallas. Actually, they would say that 9-11 was my generation's JFK assassination because baby boomers vastly overestimate their importance to American history. But I digress. It's hard for me to put Kennedy's assassination in context because it's hard to put the man in context. I mean, he died so fast, that's all we learned about him in school. 
So to help other millennials figure out who Kennedy was, I figured I'd stack him up next to all the men who were president during my lifetime. It is, unfortunately, still all men. Uh, I was born right after Desert Storm, towards the end of George H.W. Bush's term as president. And they have their similarities. They were both rich New Englanders, Kennedy from Massachusetts and H.W. from Connecticut. They were both naval heroes of World War II fighting in the Pacific. On the other hand, Bush never had JFK's charisma, and he was also in the CIA when they killed Kennedy. So, uh, I mean, not that. And I guess H.W. has a better track record for replacing Latin American dictators. Plus, while Kennedy could take down legendary amounts of pills and booze, H.W. threw up on the prime minister of Japan and then fainted. At least he didn't say he was a jelly donut. Then there's Bill Clinton, who very much was a jelly donut. The first president I remember, and a famous Democrat, he has a lot in common with JFK. They're both well-educated cheaters whose wives stayed with them. They both paid lip service to civil rights without making anything better. But Clinton never hooked up with a Marilyn Monroe type, and Kennedy knew how to keep it out of the press. I mean, seriously, Bill, an intern? What were you inhaling? That brings us to George W. Bush, the author of what used to be America's most embarrassing chapter. It might not seem like there's a lot of overlap between W and JFK, other than being known by their initials, but they were both rich kid idiots, they both had sinister vice presidents, and they both got us into military quagmires that defined their eras. But Kennedy had the decency to die before the war got really out of hand. Oh, and they were also both their father's second choice of son to be president. But nobody's mourning the fallen political career of Jeb! Barack Obama makes the most sense. I mean, Harvard men, they both have iconic wives. They're easy to imitate. Heck, they were both pretty young when they took office, and they both had their loyalty to America questioned because of racism and xenophobia. Of course, Obama got threatened over his race so much that he never would have ridden in an open-top car. Then there's Trump, and I'll keep it brief so the taste doesn't stick in your mouth. He and Kennedy are both rich guys with dumb accents who cheated on their wives, but Kennedy made it look classy. I mean, Trump's a supposed billionaire, and he doesn't even know how to wear a suit. It's called a pocket square, Donnie. And that just leaves Joe Biden. Obvious connection there, two Irish Catholic nutjobs, and not a drop of malarkey between them. But nobody's worried that murder will be the reason that Biden dies in office. I guess Kennedy's not like the president's ideal. But on some personal level, I identify with John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I've never been to war or had to stand up to the nuclear threat, but I also want what's best for a country in turmoil. And more importantly, I'm about to take a handful of painkillers and go looking for blondes. Good night, everybody. To me, James, it what's so, ahead, interesting, what's so interesting about what you're saying is these, there's these moments, and we've talked about the, this a lot in this podcast, right? There's these moments that are very rare in U.S. history that mark a beginning and an end, right? So often in what we talk about, like there's, we talk about the Gilded Age and we talk about the Progressive Era and we talk about the Depression, but truly these these times are, are ebbing and flowing within each other, right? There's no hard boundaries really, but Kennedy's assassination, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, right? Um, 9-11, these are moments I think that we can look at and demarcate a before and an after. 
The and... election of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> that was a different for, kind of apocalypse. And we'll get to that. January 6th. Say, but, but, but I will also say to Berlin Wall coming down. You know, we started this by talking about the use of public media by Kennedy. And I think, you know, the. the... We turned to the media's use of Kennedy. Right. And trauma, this collective trauma that everybody yeah. suffers. Yeah, uh, everyone can remember where they were when Kennedy was assassinated because mm -hmm. it was broadcast for 70 hours straight. It interrupted as the world turns, for God's sake. Now, I remember the Eddie Murphy joke when um, Dick Cavett was talking to him about, well, do you remember where you were when Kennedy was assassinated? It's like, yeah, someone came up to me and said, not little baby, Kennedy is dead. <laughs> <laughs> So James and Chelsea and Sylvia. And that's how I feel about it. It's like, there's this. Since we're doubling on Kennedy traumatic things happening, let's sort of try to wrestle with it. Oh, so let's I talk about his childhood. Yeah. Yes. You know, we've been talking let's for 20 minutes. Kennedy, the early years. How did he get We're talking there? about the Kennedys and trauma. Let's talk about his childhood. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to say for 20 minutes and we haven't even gotten to the biography. It's literally 20 minutes about the perception of Kennedy, which is which in and of itself is rather interesting. I'm yeah, gonna it's throw very out, telling. I'm going to throw out my extremely weird theory for this episode. Yes, good. The <laughs> most important member of the generation of Kennedys all of them that Joe and Rose produced was Rosemary. Mm. The way that, okay, that's how a very privileged young man like uh, John and for, you know, maybe Bobby and for, you know, and certainly Eunice. And that's uh, how these Brahmins, these self appointed Brahmins, because as Irish Catholics, they could not technically claim the title. That's where they learned empathy. The way Roosevelt learned empathy by developing polio and marrying Eleanor. Eunice! Credits! Growing up with a sister who had intellectual disabilities, who was so cruelly treated and shuttled around by her family. She, Eunice, who went on to marry Sergeant Shriver and marrying someone named Sergeant is a form of charity in and of itself, and start the <laughs> Special Olympics. She credits her life's mission to Rosemary who, you know, was one of the last of the generation to die. And she believes that the wellspring of Jack's liberalism was having Rosemary as a sister. Uh, you sound dubious. That's one word for that sound. Yes, <laughs> it gives it away. So do you think that Chelsea, since it's dubious, that there's more to it? I think part of it is that even though they are from Joe on, um the kennedys were yes high level very but they were irish catholic immigrants yes so there is a certain a familial historical uh feeling of being part of the underclass too yes, that I, they I, have I, not yet forgotten but it yes. is boston irish so that's but still not I really looked down on as much but still irish catholic it i mean it doesn't matter necessarily sure it's easier to be irish catholic in boston it's probably the easiest place to be irish catholic but you're still irish catholic there is still a divide between you and old world protestants right i would say it's uh, even it's exaggerated in boston because okay. it's a, compared to new york it's a fairly small city and it has yes. a very specific puritan waspy heritage 
Witness, witness Goodwill Hunting 30 Years On, it's still there. Ooh, man, I love that movie. Wicked awesome. Wicked awesome. <laughs> Wicked awesome. And... It's weird saying that not in a Boston accent. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I said it in a Boston accent, because you didn't, and it made me uncomfortable. <laughs> James, our audience can't see, but you it looks like you've been thinking about Paul's proposition. I... I, I question to some extent at least to what extent the kennedy's empathy was real and to what extent it was performative yeah this is this is what i really wanted to get to james uh and and i guess to the other point um this has certainly come up before we've talked about the uh, homogenization of white people in the wake of world war ii and how it kind of before we have all these kind of immigrant groups different ethnic, religious minorities. You know, there's waspy Protestants at the top, and then there's kind of a very, like, defined pecking order all the way down. And then after World War II, there's kind of, it, it doesn't happen all at once, and it ne never happens completely, but there's kind of this homogenization of, of white people and saying, you know, okay, we're all white, we're all relatively the same. And I think that perhaps is one of the key events that allows Kennedy to be seen as a mainstream candidate. Yeah. Certainly, the Catholicism is an issue in his campaign, um, but it's not as much of an issue as it would as it was for, for example, Al Smith. Yeah. Um, oh, just, yeah. You know, a few decades prior. A, a variation on Paul's question to sort of limit it to to Rosemary. The mythos of the Kennedys has as much to do with the clan and the family and the preordination and something that I was taught in the 60s and 70s in my Catholic school, the suffering that the family endured. There was the Kennedy curse. The Kennedy Rose. curse. And Rose credits the beginning of the Kennedy curse with the lobotomization of Rosemary. Mm -hmm. Not Joseph's philandering. So I guess my question is how much of that played into the ultimate mythologization and rise of john when he finally got past you know got got out of the drink of pt 109 which we'll get to momentarily as well and everything else it, it actually i think to one i don't think the the kennedy curse was really like something that people were talking about and when john was running um you know i, I think that really only got going when after he was they, killed right after they started to die <laughs> Yeah, um, I would say after Robert and people after Bobby Dunn, right. Joe, Rosemary, John, rule of three. Uh, number three, Kathleen Kennedy, kids. She died in a plane oh, crash right. after she was excommunicated that's from right. the family for marrying a Protestant right. war hero. And yeah. Joseph the third, I mean, he died in the plane crash. So well, I still think that the Kennedy myth was put together to just sell books. <laughs> what so do you think, James? James? You don't think that the suffering? Kennedy curse really, really took fire until after really you know caught fire until after bobby was dead no i you know i i think that that's fair i mean certainly like john f kennedy was the most famous dead person the moment he died but um you know you know of, the most of, famous of the recently dead deceased <laughs> um more ink was spilled for him than for any others um and then you know after bobby got assassinated i think people were then like Oh, that's 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 a rough blow for one family, and then it just continued to happen. Yeah. I, but I think that his kind of 
the sense that Kennedy really did kind of grow up in, in a, a privileged background was only a political liability to him because, of course, America still has this appetite for people who are, are self-made. And I think Kennedy really took pains throughout his campaign to show that while he was young and perhaps lacked experience, he did have experience in certain important areas. Of course, he really touted his war service um, and some of which was, you know, legitimate. Um, and, you know, he certainly touted his, um, you know, senatorial record, although brief it may have been. Um, and, you know, he certainly was, uh, you know, kind of touted his, his anti-communist credentials as well throughout his campaign and, and tried to present himself as somebody who, you know, maybe was young, but had the, the ability to get the job done and wasn't just somebody who had been put here as a, a placard. Can we talk a little bit about the war? Because James, you sort of, it's interesting, because again, PT-109, the myth, uh, and you kind of said, well, some of it is true. <laughs> you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm not, I, I would defer to somebody else for uh, a real in-depth, uh, you know, exploration of that. I do know that he served. I know that he was on this boat. I know that the boat was attacked. I know that there's kind of this story about, you know, efforts that he did to try to save people and, and get back. I don't really am not the person to verify whether that's totally authentic. But, but my, do you know about the coconuts? I don't know about the coconuts. Oh, and I also Andy, tell us that, about the coconut. <laughs> coconut is my favorite the PT 109 story. Tell us about the coconuts. <laughs> well, first you take the lime and you put it in the coconut. Oh, make it all up. Oh, <laughs> so he, so when he was out on the Pacific during the the patrol the pt i think is a patrol boat um it wasn't shot down or torpedoed literally another a japanese destroyer came and sliced just plowed through him sliced the boat in two so kennedy you know the myth he he saved one of his sailors by literally tying the rope that was around him swam with him in his teeth till he got to the island dragged him to shore and saved him saved i think 11 got 11 of his other crew members, swam to another island because this one was totally devoid of anything. Went out, found another island, swam out to another island, swam back, said, here's a better one. We've got food and coconuts. Got them all out there. Um, then they found someone, some coast watchers. He wrote a note to, on a coconut saying this is where we are. I, there's 11 of us, we're on the Nauvoo no Island. Gave it to this other, to the coast watcher who went out and found, I think an Australian guard to send a boat there and rescue them. And I think the coast watcher was probably just as much responsible for saving their lives as Kennedy was. But his, his bravery, I think was, was pretty renowned at that point. He did, his first book was written about this, Profiles and Courage. And I think it second book, first one was while England slept. <laughs> right. And, and also really like did a number on him physically because I think oh yeah, yeah. Back, I was gonna say back problem that that back that, was already that, in a bad shape and it just made it even worse. So I think we could talk about dragging an extra human along with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get, getting hit by a boat will do that. Yep. Yes. That will do it too. Right. 
but they so if you're not sure so one of the things i read was that the island that they landed on was called plum pudding island they later renamed it kennedy island i was going to ask you guys if you knew that that was if that was true or apocryphal but i thought that was like the coconut and the plum pudding island were two of the most entertaining parts of this story that, that i did. certainly they have plums in the south pacific who knew and they say war is hell that, and that might have gone so, a little something like this. Who goes there? It is I, Irone Kumana, from the Coast Watchers. Ghost Watchers? No ghosts here, mate. No, Coast Watchers. We are a network of agents based along the Pacific Islands, tasked with keeping an eye on the enemy and reporting back to Allied forces. I have ridden through Japanese-infested waters to bring a message from Lieutenant John Kennedy, captain of the United States torpedo boat PT-109, which was sunk off Plum Pudding Island. Plum Pudding Island? Did he have to swim through Sporter Dick Bay? <laughs> I don't believe so. Look, we have a very urgent message from the lieutenant. He's... Well, what's it say? Nauru Island. Commander. A native knows position. He can pilot. Eleven alive. Needs small boat. Kennedy. What bloody hell is that supposed to mean? It's saying he's the commander of the boat and that he's off Nauru Island and that the native... What native? That's me. I do know his position. Now, now if you could give me a boat... I'll native? Be a... Native of what? I am a Solomon Islander. A salamander? You could call me a Solomoner, I suppose, but, but we must hurry. I can show you the way. Their boat was literally sliced in two by a Japanese destroyer. This message says there are 11 people in the crew. They are starving. Some are injured. Oh, hold on. What is that you are reading this message off of? Have you got a coconut? Um, yes. Lieutenant Kennedy very cleverly etched the message on this coconut shell. Where did you get the coconut? Where did it come from? Uh, um, I carried it here. I'm afraid paper and pencil were in rather short supply on these uninhabited South Pacific islands. Salamander can't carry a coconut. I beg your pardon? I mean, it's a simple question. A weight ratio. A five-ounce salamander couldn't carry a one-pound coconut. Well, it's not a whole coconut in it. It's just half a shell. What'd you do with the rest of the coconut? What? I, I don't know. This is all he gave me. I imagine they ate the coconut. I thought they were on plum pudding. You put coconuts in plum pudding. Don't be daft. Then it'd be coconut pudding, wouldn't it? Now, see here. I risked a great many dangers to bring this message to you. If we had been caught by the Japanese with an allied message in our possession, we could have been brutally killed or tortured. Do the Japanese know how to read coconuts? <laughs> <laughs> Please, I just need a boat to Plum Pudding Island. Do salamanders even eat plum pudding? Well, it was a European salamander, but this here's a South Pacific salamander. Ah, I knew I should have gone to the American camp. For some reason, I didn't quite realize that when John came back, it's within two years he's running for office and winning. Yeah. Wow. And you he can go right to people one on your back. You better use that story for something, right? Right. It's his war record. Mm -hmm. It's his best-selling book from the New York, you know, best-selling New York Times bestseller. Um, we're not going to talk how it became a New York Times bestseller, but. Um, right, he already has a, a pretty substantial um, resume. And, and let's be clear, it's it's the House of Representatives. Right, Anybody so it's a regional, it's a local 
you know, he's Boston Crody's Being and, Irish Catholic is kind of all you need to win in that right. district, probably. And between Joseph, Joseph's family and Rose's father and family, I'm sure they were able to push the votes through. 100%. What was his house record like? I seem to recall that like pretty much from the beginning, his main distinguishing characteristic is being fairly hawkish on communism. Yeah. I, I seem to recall that he was one of like, he was very reticent to criticize the McCarthyists and kind of, he really kind of kept his hands off of that. Uh, didn't do a lot to defend people who maybe were being wrongly accused. Well, his brother was counsel for McCarthy after all. I was going right. to say, yeah. That and, and that kind of, yeah, it, it is his, those are, you know, some of the main credentials that he ends up using during his presidential campaign is his hard line against communism, which to some extent may have been necessary for a Democrat to win, considering that I do think that kind of the, 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 the red taint was something that was kind of a, a leftover thing from the Truman administration that they were going to have to deal with electorally. Ew. Sorry. <laughs> And also, interestingly, especially the the anti-communism, a parallel with another young World War II veteran on the opposite side that he's going to run into a time or two, yeah. even though yep. he's not there that long anyway. Um, isn't, you know, I mean, anti-communist, isn't that kind of like the easy, low-hanging fruit that you can you know, tie your campaign to. I mean, no one was out there saying I'm pro-communist or let's take it easy on the communists. Uh, the people have been accused of being communist. Yeah, it's definitely not something that was on his uh, his his stump platform, right? Go communists. <laughs> yeah. It's like being anti-terrorism in 2002. I mean, it's just right. like... Well, um... How much, how, how early was Kennedy aware of Nixon and Nixon aware of Kennedy? Well, I think they were elected at the same time. Yeah. yeah, they're elected. They're elected to the House at the same time. Yeah. 46. Yeah. But I don't know, you know, I don't know if they're like sitting around collaborating on legislation necessarily. So we're, we're talking Nixon, right? Yeah. yeah. So I remember how I talked about cloning Kennedy in a lab. I like to think that Nixon is like the Republicans tried to make Kennedy in a lab and it came out all wrong. Yes. He's the, yes. the, the Abbey yes. normal. Yeah. That's, yes. That's a horrifying thought. That's yeah. exactly what Richard Nixon is. Oh my God. Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> this the is a charismatic person, right? So did Nixon's pathological and ultimately destructive hatred of the Kennedys and the Kennedy family. Did it start earlier? Yeah, this, this is a rephrasing Joe's question. Did it start earlier than the, than the 1960 campaign? Uh, I'm No, because I don't think he perceived them as his enemies then mm -hmm. until they ran oh. against each other. Yeah, and that was always his thing is, these are the people who have wronged me. May they die. But were or they allies? Be that they were just wealthy people and they were in that amorphous group of wealthy folk, not necessarily looking at hating the Kennedys, but hating wealthy folk. Or they were allies because they had a common enemy, enemy Reds. I think it's important to understand that just because you're an ally with someone politically, that doesn't mean that you're an ally with them 
politically in other ways, if right. that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Just because you have have the same like, oh, we both agree on this issue and we're willing to work together on this issue because it politically benefits both of us to do so, doesn't mean that we have real warm, friendly feelings about each other. I mean, Kennedy Probably could not possibly... People. Go ahead, Especially with one of those people is Nixon. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you don't see warm and friendly as a descriptor for Nixon. No. I don't oh, even no. think Pat could say that. Even Checkers was a little bit... He can be a bit cold. <laughs> We need to talk about that 1960 election. We know the legend of the actual culmination of the election, but when you look at the battle for both parties' nominations, man, that was a crazy-ass election start to finish. Both parties, like, that That was as insane a, a campaign that I think you'll, you can find in american history we have like a like i know that we have like the henry clay like i ran for president a bazillion times and never made it list but do we have like a nice guys finish last list because that's um that's, stevenson. Uh, stevenson. And like, okay and then um hubert humphrey we gotta put hubert humphrey on that humphrey. list I, I i love hubert humphrey the guy was you know, a pretty passionate campaigner for human rights throughout his political career. A, a, a true liberal. A yes. true unabashed yes. liberal. Yep. yep. Um, and I also feel like the the Kennedys kind of played some dirty tricks on him during the yes. campaign. No. The West Virginia <laughs> primary. You know, there because, was... Because Kennedy came on late, didn't he? I mean, he kind of came from behind, as I... If I what I understand that. is that... He doesn't... Oh, go ahead. That Kennedy, of course, had all like the, the campaign architecture, right? He had so much funding and he had so much media attention. But uh, um, Humphrey basically is like, I think I can I can win a a door to door campaign. I think if you put me in front of the common folk, that I can make a better connection with those folks than than you know old uh, you know Kennedy from Oyster Bay or whatever can. He kind of, and I think he doesn't win the first mm -mm. primary, but he like does better than everybody thought he was going to do. And so then he's like, okay, maybe I've got a chance here now that people, and like kind of the field cleared out at that point. And so then ultimately it kind of came down to West Virginia and he thinks like, okay, well, this is a very Protestant state. It's, you know, it's not super Catholic. So maybe that gives me a leg up. Um, and, but he, he doesn't really run on that. He, he kind of, calls off the dogs in terms of the anti-Catholic message, but then I forget exactly what happened, but basically like the, the, Bobby like gets some relative of FDR to like trash Humphrey in some way. I I'm forgetting some of the details here, but it's like, that sounds like Bobby. but it's like, it's a lie. And so this guy ends up going out and just trashing Humphrey. And then he's turns out that whatever he said was a total lie. And, and he felt like he was really embarrassed by that, but, yeah, it was um, too late. Yeah, it was too late. And at that point, Humphrey loses. Uh, and Kennedy secured the nomination before he got to the convention. I, no, I think he it did was, not. It was it was I think I don't think it was official, but I think it was it was fate accompli. I think they knew that he was going to be the guy. Yeah, it was an I open convention. Then, they did not know it was going to be Kennedy. But yeah, it took one ballot. Yeah, yeah. Like, by, okay. by, by the time they got to the convention, it was, you know, the classic he has the most votes but not enough to 
not a plurality. Clinch it uh, outright, and there's still enough leeway that maybe Johnson or Humphrey could have could have taken it. In a and Johnson did his best to try to sabotage the nomination, but he didn't have enough leverage. He tried to convince someone to throw their votes to Adlai Stevenson and actually destroy the party in order to save it so he could secure the nomination. But the Johnson-Kennedy alliance was an uneasy one from the start. Bobby was down in LBJ's hotel suite saying, no, 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 you can't accept the nomination. And then Don called the same hotel suite and said, Bobby, shut up. He's going to be the vice president. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, Nixon now did, I mean, again, we'll probably go over this when we get to the Nixon episode, but did Nixon, I mean, was he sort of, was he, did he, I, he, he wasn't just gifted the nomination because he was vice president, given his position and everything he had went through, was he? Was he contested? Was Goldwater running at that time? Or did he wait so. till 64? We, we can't let this moment pass without one of my favorite quotes, uh, which is, so of course, Nixon is running heavily on his vice presidential record. And so they ask Eisenhower and they say, you know, Mr. President, what, you know, has the, what, what advice from the vice president have you taken or what initiatives have, has the vice president suggested that yeah. you have followed him up on? Uh, you know, basically like, what the hell has he done in office? <laughs> and Eisenhower says, you know, I think if I think about for that about that for a few days, I'll get back to you. <laughs> he's got wow. he's got nothing on the spot. He's got nothing on the spot. So basically, Nixon was not an effective vice president. There is no oh, way no. to be an effective vice president. I don't think. I mean, from the research I just read was that Nixon, being Nixon, tries to mess around with policy and interfere with Eisenhower's policies, and Ike didn't take very kindly to that. I could see that. Did Ike even endorsed Chain of command. Like, uh, and Ike, Ike didn't endorse Nixon before the... Um, general election? Right, before the general, did he? I mean, he, he pretty much, even though he was his vice president, he kind of kept his hands free during the primary. It was Goldwater. So it was Goldwater. Goldwater. In 60. Okay. Oh, so Goldwater's a multiple presidential loser. Note that, y'all. Oh, <laughs> another loser. Yeah. Goldwater was too scary for a lot of people. In your heart, you know he's right. In your guts, you know he's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so the presidential campaign, the first debate in Chicago, we all know the story by now. Nixon's hurt. He has this, he wears a bad suit. He's sick. He's got Doesn't the wrong makeup. makeup. Yeah. People no, didn't listen to trouble. it on radio say Nixon kicked his ass. People watch that. Then they go, oh, my God, Kennedy looks great. And the myth is that was it. That's what turned the election. Was it? Nobody knows. Anybody who <laughs> says they know is full of it. Nobody freaking knows. <laughs> I, it's, oh, it, you know, it's a thing to say without much in-depth knowledge or research. Well, like, how, how are you going to figure that out? How are you going to figure out, like, out of the you know 100 million voting americans this many well, suppose, people who watched the debate on television changed their minds at that moment and this many people were listening by radio changed their minds at that moment and the, the difference between the two uh, distributed among the the key states that kennedy won equals the margin of victory in those states nobody knows you can't maybe, maybe you know, find James. the voting machines that were thrown in the chicago river <laughs> I don't know, James. I, I really want to look at Gallup polls before and after the debate now. 
I mean, you can, but, you know, remember, like, these are the same polls that said that Dewey beats Truman by 20 points or whatever, and then turns out that didn't happen. So, um, you know, I, I feel like people who, before, I don't know, 1980, anybody who says that they have a real understanding of what was going on in the American electorate, I think is speculation. You know, some of it is going to be more founded than others, but, you know, to kind of dive down to a in a close election like this one and to say, oh, yeah, this is what changed, changed it. This was the moment. I, I think that's really, really hard to say. Um, there is one entity that always trumpets the power of the media, and that is the media. Well, <laughs> but I'll also point out that, you know, okay. one of the other questions or demographic questions that I would be really interested in digging more into is. Gallup's and not just Gallup, but surveys of women voters pre and post debate, right? Not to say that ladies were wooed by a young, charismatic, attractive, and clever president. However, and his fashion plate wife, whom we haven't mentioned yet. Oh my gosh, how have we not? I don't. Well, I figured I would. Great um, But also, <laughs> right? having a national broadcast of this debate brings these political questions and brings these political faces into your home in a way that's very um, intimate. And this is something that we've talked about before on this show, um, but I think it does sway some voters, right? To have JFK and Nixon in your living room. I mean, I, I know I would easily choose who I would want in my living room. <laughs> I guess two things. One, we keep talking about a debate, right? Like the debate was the debate, the turning point. And I was looking up something else, the debate that we were talking about. There were actually four debates. Mm. I know. Um, one in Chicago, one in DC, and then one in LA and one in New York. And so that to me is really interesting. Were they all televised? They were all televised. The it's one... just the last one, though, that is kind of the Nixon has the five o'clock shadow. And is no, that's of... the first one. It's the first gets, one. Okay. He gets punched right from the beginning. He's down and out. So the reason I was looking it up, I remembered that uh, Richard J. Daly, for all of you Chicago mayor aficionados out there. I was like, I know that there's like a ghastly line from Daily One about Nixon during this debate, and I have found it. And it is, my God, they've embalmed him before he even died. (laughs) 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 That's good. And it it kind of holds truth through the whole of Nixon's public career, to be honest with you. (laughs) Also, um, apparently, I did not know this. This is also great. Apparently Nixon's mother immediately called him to answer after the debate to ask him if he was sick. <laughs> you, mom, you lost your mom vote then. Hey, <laughs> I'm voting for that nice Kennedy boy. <laughs> but the Kennedy Nixon race, it was hardly a Kennedy landslide. No. Yeah, it was. It oh, was not at close, all. Although I think that people overstate how close it was because while. It, if you look at the popular vote, it was pretty darn close. Of course, we know Two-tenths, all too well that that's not really what matters. And yep. Kennedy won 
semi-decisively uh, in the Electoral College. And it, it seemed like he had small but important leads in, in you know, the states that mattered. Um, but really, but, he only wins by like 30 electoral votes. They don't I mean, call it until the following morning. Yeah, it's, well, it's afternoon, actually. Yeah, it's close, but I don't think it's quite as it's it's not it's not Bush Gore close. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm, uh, I'm seeing it's it was 303 Kennedy to 219 Nixon. Yeah, that's well, although, that's although enough, 14, not 30. Although 14 Southern electors uh, refused to vote for uh, a candidate, voted for faithless electors. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that, you know, uh, that pinning the results of the 1960 election on the debates is popular among people who like really oversimplifying all issues. I mean, that's the best part about history, Paul, is to reduce <laughs> it down into uh, little no, simplify it. Is, is it. Is that the best part? Is that not what we've been doing here? <laughs> okay. No, the best part about history is it's looking at, like, the pea soup fog that it is and then just calling it that, being like, yes, don't even try to make it uh, intelligible. You're wasting your time. It's just it's just yep. weird. So that, that, that's fair. I don't actually listen to this show, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but All right, you... so we finally got to the term, and um, we've got a thousand days to go, and you want to talk about symbolism and mythology. He lasts a thousand days. The term lasts exactly a thousand days. Um, no, it doesn't. So, yeah. Lasts so like a thousand sixty-nine. Oh, well, hey! Nice. nice. <laughs> That's arguably that's better. We as historians are here to complicate everything you thought. (laughs) It is it is the third shortest twentieth century presidency. It's a little bit longer than Ford's and Harding's. Um, Shortest. Yeah. Too bad. You know, and, and while all of the, I mean, again, we're, we're sort of touching on all the, like we don't, you know, the Bay of Pigs was a complete disaster and we mentioned that. Uh, the, the, I mean, the the rivalry, would you call it, with Khrushchev? The whatever, you you know, that was I mean, a thing. Maybe, um, it, maybe it starts that way, but it definitely doesn't end that way. If you think about the talks that they have in Vienna about nuclear, nuclear test nuclear test bans um well that's this post, is, and that's post. this is one of the things that so okay so i, I think that that you know but at least before we wrap this up we have to you know get in our criticisms of kennedy and here's oh, yeah here's some <laughs> my my big ones number one is the way the cuban missile crisis was handled while it was handled by and large successfully it destabilized khrushchev's premiership Yes. And we ended up losing somebody that we could work with in the Soviet Union. Yep. Um, you know, I, I think that Khrushchev was by far the most of, of all the Soviet premiers. He was the one before Gorbachev was most interested in building relationship with the West. And the fewest people. And he also and so by not not letting the our removal of the missiles in Turkey become public, it looked like that was just a one-sided the soviets kind of blinked and and we didn't oh and i think that that in the soviet union among you know the communist party leadership was seen as wow khrushchev just looked weak on the global stage and i kind of thought that that was one of the things that was kind of the beginning of the end of his premiership um did not know that they had missiles u.s missiles removed from turkey yes 
we had had, and they were relatively obsolete. Although again, I would argue that any missile with a nuclear warhead on it is not obsolete. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it a quid pro quo? They did not portray it as such, although it was. Yes, it it was not portrayed as such. The the United States said that when they removed the missiles, the United States said that they were scheduled for removal anyways, but that was part and parcel of the Cuban Missile Agreement that they pulled the missiles out of Cuba. We pulled the missiles out of Turkey. You know, there's some other stuff that we promised not to invade Cuba. You know, we promised to end the blockade. Um, but yeah, you know, that, that, that was not, that was basically a secret protocol of the agreement was us withdrawing from Turkey. And I think if, if we had, we had said, Hey, we're withdrawing from Turkey. We recognize that, Hey, maybe each side putting missiles in each other's backyard is not the greatest thing for world peace. Then Khrushchev could have sold that as, Hey, we might've lost our leverage in Cuba, but we just gained some peace and security at home. And that might've allowed him to survive longer politically. So, um, in Mos- so, so to the guy on the guy in red square in Moscow, Cuba, the Cuba was a loss in I mean, and again, remember, like when we're talking about Soviet politics, we're really just talking about the upper level leadership in the Communist Party is really what the matters. Politburo. The Politburo and kind of the sub Politburo people. But I think they kind of got itchy when they saw Khrushchev take an L as they saw it on that negotiation. And then when he kind of ran into some economic troubles and there was a little bit more social unrest because, you know, he hadn't killed all the dissenters this time. Uh, that's when they decided to pull the plug. Um, you know, so I, I don't, you know, again, counterfactual, I don't know, but when you got a guy you can work with in Moscow, it seems to me that they could have done more to make him look stronger to his, you know, allies instead of forcing him to look weak and then destabilizing his regime. And then we got stuck with basically talking to the brick wall that was Leonid Brezhnev for 20 years. And they would have allowed Khrushchev to look strong and been absolutely destroyed in the 1964 elections and actually the, probably the 62 midterms. It would have been a trade-off. Hell of a trade-off. I, to counterfactual the whole thing. I don't, I don't think that us saying that we withdrawed miss, missiles from Turkey would have killed Kennedy's re-election chances. I, they probably wouldn't have helped as much as what ended up happening did, but I think it would have been a relatively small political price to pay. Svedania, Moscow. I am newsreader Irena with a special report on Moscow State News to celebrate year three of five-year plan number five of glorious Soviet revolution. Today, we ask typical citizens conducting their usual business on Red Square in Moscow to discuss situation with American dogs on the island of Cuba. After party leader Khrushchev chose to end confrontation with degenerate American war criminal, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I then is at Red Square on balmy November day with mere two below Celsius wind chill. We would like to ask open opinions of normal citizens awed by the power of party leader Khrushchev, who assess his role in beating down capture American big leader Kennedy. 
you, comrade. I already fought in Great War twice. Do not conscript me again. I am asking you a question about Cuban missiles. Yeah, I never fired no missiles at Cuba. Yes, respected veteran of Great Patriotic War. I am asking about the recent so-called crisis between our ally Cuba and the mortal enemy of glorious Soviet Union, the worms of the United States of America, in which party leader Khrushchev put Soviet missiles within close range of pigsty American continent. I have thought we show strength against Hornmonger Kennedy until end. Until end? Why why did Khrushchev take missiles away from Crybaby Kennedy after Crybaby Kennedy cry like baby? He knew we had mighty massive Soviet warheads and poop in his dive. Russia should have used warheads to crush America like we crash Hitler. Why did Khrushchev blink? I see. Well, Thank you for serving Mother Russia. These comrades here will take you to local establishments for reward vodka. Take him away. I would like some vodka. It is 9 a.m. after all. Why are you pushing? Gata! How's it up? We do not question the courage or wisdom of party leader Khrushchev. We do not. Thankfully, we can take our veteran's way home, where he can get rest from his obvious war injuries. Perhaps you can find another common citizen to speak to the success of being in Cuba. Ah, I am now here with common woman wife, taking care of strong Soviet family. Correct, common woman? Oh, da, da. <laughs> I am out to get extra potatoes for a meal for the week. You have followed the news of our glorious conflict with the United States? Oh, it is the time for Olympics already. Not yet, no. This is with the missile weapons we put outside the United States. Oh, that is strong response. It is why I have picture party leader Khrushchev in my home. Strong. What did Americans do to us to deserve it? The Americans are our mortal enemy. That is reason enough. Oh, Khrushchev has said that. Ah, oh, those three chins all shook so much when he said it. I dream. So masculine. Indeed. It makes you proud for Khrushchev, doesn't it? Ah, oh, I do hope it is enough for him to keep his shoes on when he talks to Americans next time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your time, common woman Soviet wife. Oh, thank you. Oh, now, where did my husband go? I hope he is not talking about surviving the war again. To strangers over vodka. Back to you in studio, Irina. <laughs> Keep his shoe on. And people say Russians have no sense of humor. Anyone else to speak to, Ivan? I have here a young student from a local university who says he studies current affairs. The future of our country is in hands like this. Sir, what are your opinions of Cuban activity from party leader Khrushchev? I fear that by his decision to take the missiles out of the Northern Hemisphere, that our leader has given the American leader a victory that may make Khrushchev's work more difficult. If Khrushchev looks weak, others in Politburo may see weakness and try to oust him for their own ends. I suspect that someone like Brezhnev may be able to take advantage of the episode to become in power. You are rather impudent. My father works for Comrade Brezhnev, nondescript television host. Mind who you support when you ask comrades on the street their opinions. We are finished with our discussions with common citizens, Arena. You certainly are. Comrades? Uh, uh, back to you in... What are you doing? 
I do not need vodka. Get your hands off of me. Help me, Khrushchev. Khrushchev, Nikita, you will never know. interviewer tomorrow at this time to discuss their belief in the up-and-coming Brezhnev regime. We now return you to our three of Soviet musical smash, the plowing fields of victory with Russian-made tractors. This is where we have to talk about Bobby, because I think... Bobby is somebody who I think goes through a little bit of an evolution. And I think he's a relatively different person when he runs in 68 than he is during the Kennedy presidency. Oh yeah. Oh, but my God, he was the worst in the, during JFK's presidency. He's the worst. And, 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 and this, this is the most problematic part to me about the JFK presidency is making your brother, the attorney general, right? That is a conflict of interest signed, sealed and delivered. Guess whose idea it was? Dad? Oh, yeah. Give your little brother something to do. Dad! You gotta take your little brother with you when you go to DC. If you can't tell your dad to go shove it when you're the president, then you're never gonna be able to do it. I already told him he could see Marilyn. What's the big deal? I mean, they couldn't have given him something unimportant, like labor secretary or... Hey, that's very important. To me, it's like you want to get him hired in the administration, or why couldn't he even run for Kennedy's old seat? Why, you know, Kennedy vacates his seat um, to take office. Why couldn't Bobby have run for his old seat? Like one residency, Bobby actually did consider running in states that did not have the residency requirement, like Connecticut. And two, Bobby was a shitty politician. Well. Until well, 68. And, and three, right? Putting your brother as attorney general is a nice buffer for any legal issues that might arise. And that's why it's such a horrible idea. All right. Yes. And this is yes. and this is why this is why the Kennedy presidency further resembles the Godfather, because we're keeping it in the family, right? Bobby's gonna be the uh, uh, the hitman here. He's going to be able to deal deal uh, with any of our problems. And the thing is, Tom Hagen, and he gets all these assignments that have nothing to do with his area of competency, which I, I don't really know was anything. But as Attorney General, in theory, Aww. is law enforcement. And but he's like half running the CIA. He's half running the State Department. You know, he's you know half the you know lead negotiator on half the stuff. And it's like. You can't just make your brother the prime minister. Like that's not how Any politics works. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> Joe had already spent all that money getting uh, Jack elected. He wasn't gonna like run another campaign to get Bobby a seat in the Senate. Oh, it wouldn't have cost him that much. It would have been <laughs> all the money in the world could not have bought Bobby a pleasant personality. And in the early six, and in the early sixties, he was just an asshole. He was well, an asshole with all the right ideas. There you go. Well, I mean, if you want to be a senator from Massachusetts, you should just be the biggest asshole you can. That's right, Massachusetts. I'm coming for you now. What are you oh, saying about Elizabeth Warren, Patrick? Subscribers laugh. <laughs> that Elizabeth Warren, while a lovely person and a, and a great politician, is also a asshole.
And we know that, again, JFK only paid lip service to the March on Washington. Uh, yeah, I think I would, that... have, I would have hoped he thought game recognized game when he heard the I have a dream speech. I, I think towards the end of his administration, he was becoming somewhat more outspoken on his civil rights. But yeah. and, and, and so, again, you know, he wasn't expecting to be shot and killed. Right. Um, <laughs> Who amongst yeah. us is? Yeah. I, 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 I do wonder true. if perhaps if he had the the luxury of a lame duck term, if maybe he would have used that to become more outspoken on that issue. Um, yeah, no, I think I've it was fair about that. I think, mm -hmm. but I think again, he didn't quite have, you know, and trying to find that balance, you know, between, yeah. you know, you don't want to alienate this and we do need to bring people in here mm -hmm. without having Johnson's bulliness. He couldn't quite get it yeah. done as quickly, but I think he was sincere about getting it done. I don't think Johnson would have picked it up if he didn't think Kennedy actually like wanted to make sure he. And there was the fact that there done. was no way to avoid the topic of civil rights in 1963 right. because that was the year of uh, Selma. Correct me if I'm wrong. There was also the year of the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one, but That's right. all hell close quote was breaking loose on civil rights which is just to say that people who'd been oppressed for a century were finally starting to assert their rights and everyone called it a problem so, oh, just a century they were only I was gonna say a just a century okay. well yeah but i mean before that there was, there was slave but they, oh before that well, that's, that's, a that's not oppression yeah exactly like, i'm talking about i'm talking about the what kind of law had changed a century pre earlier but and you know, you've sunk to a new low because now you're being criticized by somebody who they themselves say they love economic disparity. So <laughs> I agree with everyone that Kennedy's civil rights record is not great, um, especially having run on the new frontier kind of platform. Um, but I will also say that this is one of the places that he does make some pretty substantial executive orders towards mm -hmm. improving civil rights because I think he understands that he's not going to be that effective in Congress. And so sure, we don't get these big congressional packages, but we do get kind of these piecemeal executive orders, right? Like affirmative action in housing. And we do see, um, oh, what's the other big one that, that, is during that time um, the transportation that transportation oh um but also labor right like anti-discrimination in labor right so yeah like there was public accommodations that's it yes yeah. and there was a um, and, and science did, initiatives and um, he did he did task johnson one of the few things that he asked johnson to do to head a commission that would investigate uh all all government contractors to see if to see if they had all white employees and then they would really? pressure them to say no hire a couple of negroes please so but yeah but it but one that that's a very limited step and two he put johnson in charge of it and johnson is going to make sure everyone in the room is getting along before they actually get anything done so Kennedy really didn't earn his place on the uh, black grandma's wall of Jesus, JFK, and Martin Luther King. 
No, I think he tries. And I think, again, as I have said a million times, I am not a huge fan of counterfactuals. But I think if we had seen a a second Kennedy term, I think we would see a little bit more progress legis- on the legislative side towards civil rights legislation, right? Instead of these piecemeal, right, executive orders. Um, so, well, yeah, and I think I think that was able to get more sweeping civil rights. It's it's yes, so it's actually so hard like. You did the thing by mm-hmm. being dead. Yes. Go ahead, Jay. Go ahead, right. Jay. It's it's um it's it's really hard because Kennedy never quite had the moment to do it. Yeah. And I think like Johnson has the moment. And the thing that you have to give credit to Johnson for is that he seized the moment, right? He said, Oh yeah, shit, you know what? You guys, I'm doing it. And in in a way that only Johnson could do it. And so all credit to Johnson for that. But I think we also have, you know, when if we're going to compare like Johnson's achievements to Kennedy's maybe failure of achievement, we have to recognize that Kennedy never quite had the same political space to operate in. Yep. Uh, and yes. whether or not he would have operated similarly or differently, ultimately will remain in the realm of counterfactuals. Um, and that's just kind of the way it is. You know, his 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 record is um, not bereft of civil rights achievement, but it's limited. But again, yeah. perhaps he did the best that he could have given the political cards he was dealt. And, and Sophia, I, I would say, given the option of a picture of Kennedy on your wall or a picture of Lyndon Johnson, <laughs> I think uh, your black grandma would, would better have a picture of Kennedy sitting up there with Jesus. A better looking picture. Okay. I was yeah. going to say, no one really yeah. want to look at Lyndon Johnson. And let's, and let's say, I would say, Sylvia, though, wouldn't you know the black grandma have a little bit more trouble? Uh, blaming Ken- blaming Kennedy rather than Johnson for sending her grandson to Vietnam to get him killed? Well, that's, that's a not question. much of a consideration, though. I, that one's that, a tough one to like. Yeah. We, we put we put Johnson on, on on the heat for for escalating Vietnam, and and some of that is certainly deserving. But Kennedy put Johnson in a tough spot. Oh, and yeah. because. Kennedy had had gotten, I mean, Kennedy killed Ngo Dien Dien, right? I mean, not directly, but he basically said, um, uh, you know, we're going to, we have no problem if this guy dies. And I've I've heard multiple people and high levels of government basically say, when we let that assassination go forward, we basically owned Vietnam at that point. We had affected a changing government uh, in our allies government. And at that point, this was our problem to solve. And, you know, and again, Kennedy dies. And so we don't know what Kennedy would have done. I don't think, I, I really don't think that Kennedy would have let Vietnam fall to communism because there is just no way that would have been politically possible. It would not, you know, it, it would, it, who anybody who let that happen was done, was done politically. If you let Vietnam fall, that's it. it. You know, that would have been the death of your political career, considering how much money and time and effort we had already invested in that country. Um, and so and I, I really was not pardoning your corrupt predecessor. Oh, wait, other guy who led, guy who actually led Vietnam. Anyway. Um, yeah, but doesn't isn't there an interview with McNamara in which he essentially says like and or maybe it was Johnson, maybe it was both of them, but they essentially say like 
Kennedy was planning to withdraw the United States from this conflict. And Johnson was like, no, bad plan, partner. Okay, okay, Miss uh, Historians, name his, name his best thing he did as president. Uh, Didn't cause a nuclear not, apocalypse. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, not bombing Cuba? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah. something that he, it's not something that he did do. It's something that he did not do. You know, I don't bomb Cuba every thing. day and nobody gives me a... <laughs> <laughs> nobody puts me on a half dollar coin. Yeah. Peace Corps. I will go with, and, and again, something else we haven't really talked about, but Lord, it, it absolutely had to be a factor. The man could deliver a speech. Amen. Mm-hmm. Brother, sister, he, they can, he really had a way of, you know, having Pierre Salinger writing your words does not hurt, but you know, the, the, the speech, right. He had his voice, um, you know, that inaugural speech is right up there. Of course, ich bin ein Berliner. Um, we will go to the, the to the moon. That that's a brilliant speech. Even if policy wise, it sounds like we were kind of on the road to it. Of other than no, we're actually going to make we're going to name the moonshot as the goal. That seems to have been something he came up with, or at least approved. Um, passes the Mental Health Act of 1963 on Halloween. Or signs it because you know he and Eunice had been actively campaigning for it in Congress. That is one of the very few pieces of legislation you can attribute to Kennedy, and it wasn't just because he'd been performing executive actions, which of course you know, and it was never a problem again to help the, as they call them again, and I don't blame you if you bleep me out on this word, a retarded, which was you know the word in pol in, in common parlance, and we now call neurodiverse, and I will stick with that. But, really? I thought that was just, uh, I'll, I'll ask that off camera. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, then he wanted to use people who suffered from not just intellectual disabilities, but emotional and mental disorders. So that was very progressive for the time, and I will attribute it to Rosemary. So that's my favorite Kennedy achievement of the 1,069 days. Ah, there it is, Jackie. From now on, or October 31st will no longer be Halloween. It'll be the day President Kennedy signed the bill that solved America's mental health crisis. Are you sending Barry Goldwater into space? Not the worst idea, but uh, no. I just signed the Community Mental Health Act of 1963. My sister Eunice and I have already funded research and raised awareness of the uh, intellectually disabled. And now we're helping people who are uh, just wacko. Are you going to build nicer asylums? I can narrate a classy, tasteful documentary about the horrors of Bellevue. Asylums? It's not the Middle Ages. Jackie, modern pharmaceuticals have made asylums obsolete. Instead of getting electric shocks and wandering through drab institutions, uh, crazy people will be taking drugs and wandering the streets. Are you going to build housing for the mentally ill? I can give classy, tasteful radio interviews about poor Aunt Big Edie and Cousin Little Edie and their crumbling Hamptons estate. Uh, no need, Jackie. 
The mentally ill can live with their families and get treated at the community mental health centers we're planning to build. We'll fund these new clinics for eight years, then we expect they'll pay for themselves. Are you going to pass Medicare? Well, I suppose I can record a classy, tasteful spoken word LP refuting Ronald Reagan speaks out against socialized medicine. Uh, we don't need that commie Medicare nonsense. Eunice will start a couple of foundations. Uh, they can uh, pay for everything. I can organize a charity fashion show and sell classy, tasteful designer dresses and handbags to the extremely rich. But Jack, I hope Congress is also considering some gun control legislation so we don't have paranoiacs grabbing rifles and climbing to the top floors of buildings and shooting people. Rifles. Top floors, Jackie era. That stuff only happens in Dick Conti novels, not the real world. What is your problem with this mental health act? Oh, I think it's divine, Jack, but you must admit it's tragic that you and Eunice couldn't destigmatize mental illness in time to help a certain woman in your family. You got that right. No one should have to live with what we saw growing up. You know, tantrums, mood swings, complete detachment from reality. How jealous you must have been when your father bought expensive gifts to bribe her into behaving properly. And none of it ever worked. He didn't understand that she was born that way. You really think your mother was insane from birth? My mother? I was talking about Rosemary. Oh, yes, of course. So was I. <laughs> Speaking of Rosemary, perhaps we can visit her at that facility in Wisconsin over the holidays. Maybe stop in Chicago along the way and pick up something classy and tasteful at Marshall Fields. Yeah, maybe. Uh, as long as no one tells Dad we're going to see Rosie, he might uh, have another stroke. Picked out your wardrobe for the Dallas trip? I haven't even started shopping. What color is appropriate for Texas in the fall? Uh, something that'll look good on TV while you're riding in the back of a uh, convertible. A convertible? Are you sure that's safe? Well, why wouldn't it be? It's not like Teddy's driving. We've talked about symbolism. We've talked about things. Uh, uh, we, we, we've talked about, you know, history, isolating different moments and the 60s and when do they begin? And the fact is November 22nd, 
with the Civil Rights Act and, of course, winning in 64. And again, all of which we will be discussing in the next episode. Yeah. So so luckily, we are not going to talk about all the Kennedy conspiracy assassination theories because... That's what the Internet's for. Yeah. But it does bring us to the inevitable end of the Kennedy episode, I guess. Anything that we haven't talked about, we should mention and work in that uh, we, we we hain't yet. I mean, he was a serial philanderer for anybody who cares. I don't know that anybody cares. Oh. Well, for some people, that's all they care about. Yeah, I mean, the connection between uh, having the same uh, mistress <laughs> that Sam Giancano had, I mean, that's a little close to, uh, too close to the president. And there's no actual evidence that he had an affair with Marilyn, except for a book by Norman Mailer, not the stablest hand on the finger on the trigger, that one. And I think he wrote that one to pay off. He wrote the book where he accused, uh, where he said that Kennedy had an affair with Marilyn because he was facing enormous legal fees after almost murdering his wife. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that happened. I, I just think that the, the whole happy birthday mr president thing was was an opportunity for kennedy to have some fun in maryland to get some headlines whatever where a dress that would ultimately be ruined by kim kardashian she was the hottest woman around Uh, so there's really no evidence not even hoover having something that the kennedys both had an affair with her another heard that jack may have the bobby no bobby was trying to put cover and for Jack. I feel I like think he did. Jack's tastes were more towards like college girls. Like like he <laughs> kept dating people who were like undergrads. And well, it, that it, would never be a problem again in the presidency, <laughs> would it? <laughs> well, what's so awful is when the Atlantic did their like 2013, like, let's talk about JFK. Guess who they had write a reflection on JFK? Bill Clinton, like no one, no, no one saw. How no one thought about this for was. a couple of seconds and was like, no well, one noticed that the but, but it is, were on the same track. But it is true that of that generation, and that's my generation, there are a lot of liberals and progressives that talk about the inspiration JFK had as, again, ironically, the, perhaps ironically, this liberal bastion of wanting to do, to do good. And that's one of the things that we're kind of going, what? did he really do right it's it's so interesting that you bring that up joe right because it's it's as we've talked about kennedy is this symbol of hope and optimism and promise and progress certainly in the democratic party yes but at the same time he you know it's i think pretty well documented that he lives this morally questionable marital life um and he lives these two lives simultaneously and is held and is still held up as a, well and you know a so pretty well-respected well, well, president well regarded i would argue president. that the most famous kennedy quote is ask not what your country can do for you but what you could do for your country right plagiarism plagiarism that's the Kennedy ethos, the idea that you are the spirit of volunteerism for the good of the nation. And certainly the Peace Corps was very much right. in the spirit of that, you know, go volunteer yourself to go support the efforts of our country to do good around the world. 
Um, and, and that was, I think that's the inspiration that Kennedy leaves. Whether or not Kennedy himself was actually a particularly good example of that, I think is much more questionable. Certainly his uh, political career is more one of naked ambition than totally although, humble public service. Although when Yeah, he it's was not in... necessarily substance. It's more the, the, the face and the although... looks. While he was in the House of Representatives and the Senate, he did uh, take every weekend to go back to Boston to volunteer with the local uh, Boy Scouts of Boston Council, where he was the president of the council there. But it also and it also invoked another movie from 1972, The Candidate, where Robert Redford, very Kennedy-esque, it's all about a campaign and he wins in the final moment. They look at each other and go... Now what do we do? What do we do? Yeah. And the answer was invade Cuba. Which Redford does in the movie Havana. So it all comes together. And of course, we also didn't talk about how most of the reporters pretty much knew what Kennedy was doing, but did not report it. And we could probably discuss whether it would have made any difference if it did. Because again, there will be a sea change in the media not a few years later. when. also talk about not only his affairs, but just like with FDR, his health issues were never really covered. He was probably the most sickly president that we've had since FDR. I think the autopsy said if he wasn't shot, his heart would have exploded within months because he had, he was such, there was so much cholesterol. Well, I mean, yeah, they added on drugs a lot of the time, serious narcotics, if I recall. I had actually heard uh, one report that it wasn't until after they stopped his uh, personal physician, who of course was nicknamed Dr. Feelgood, mm-hmm. uh, from prescribing him all of the pain medication that he was on, that he was actually clear-headed enough to go through with uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and mm-hmm. all that. Mm-hmm. What I read is that in his life, he had received the final rights four different times. Yes. I read them too. Yeah. And most of them came during the time he was in the Senate, actually. But mm. yeah. Yeah. If, if any information, if any truth about his health had come out during the presidential campaign, yeah, again, I don't like engaging counterfactuals, and here I am. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know that he would have been president. I think that's probably fair. And I think it's also, I I think that um, in 1960, that if people had known about his extramarital affairs to the extent that they existed, I think that that would have been a a pretty big political hit for him. Um, I would say so, yes, in 1960. Sexual scandals was still something that brought down political careers. Just yeah, destroyed a company. And I think, and I think it 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 would penetrate the 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 Kennedy, you know, the idea of Camelot of this is the yeah. all American family, right? Yes. And yep. you know, and, and to some extent, perhaps his extramarital affairs really did make it the all American family. But um, you know, and <laughs> kind of this thing that we're going to hold us way around America on a literal pedestal as as the exemplars for what are we want our our country, the people in our country to emulate. That would have obviously not been seen in that light so what happens after well lyndon johnson happens after right after 
right oh, after. Yeah. Immediately Makes the oath of office on Air Force One. Don't even um, change Jackie's your dress. Got you don't have bloody, time. Uh, Chanel suit on. Yeah, don't even change your dress. It's okay. I mean, <laughs> is there anyone like that picture? It's like you could just see Jackie in shock, right? There's no picture that oh. exemplifies somebody in shock more than the picture of Jackie watching somebody take the oath of office because her husband is dead and she's still wearing her his blood on her dress that i literally every time i look at that picture all i think is someone just let this woman lay down in bed right just don't make her stand here right now right why that is the funeral with uh, (laughs) little john john doing the salute and she's Mm -hmm. under that uh black veil (laughs) and People cred. Oh, people cred. All right. We'll get to, we will get to Lyndon Johnson ourselves next. Join us. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.